After a small flurry of innovative, if fairly inefficient, cumbersome, and expensive rapid-fire firearms emerged in the 19th century, in some cases leading to surprising, if usually quite small-scale, military outcomes, with Gatling guns and Maxim guns providing relatively small forces with the surprising for the time power to overwhelm numerically superior forces with hand-crank or recoil-powered barrel spinning that basically turned a normal weapon into what would become known as a machine gun. After that period, World War I pivoted global militaries toward what some historians have called an era of scientific warfare, where research and development became just as fundamental to the theory and practice of military conflict as marching and marksmanship. By the end of that conflict, every military on the planet had access to some type of rapid-fire machine gun model. Most of them were quite large, about the size of the cannon that were used in relatively recent wars. But these new armaments were meant to fire a great many small bullets very quickly, rather than firing one large munition like a cannonball or explosive charge. Consequently, these weapons were incredibly effective, but also had to be lugged into combat on the backs of draft animals or in trucks. A team of soldiers were required to set up, man, and maintain them, and they were specialized enough machines that they weren't cheap or easy to manufacture or repair. At the beginning of World War II, Nazi military scientists decided to start working on a lower-powered firearm round that in essence would scale down the potency of the bullets fired from most rifles at the time, making them less lethal over long distances but easier to use, cheaper to make, and capable of being fired rapidly and fairly accurately over short distances from more conventional weapons carried by a single soldier. By 1938, the Germans had a new, shortened cartridge, a bullet, basically, that was less powerful than existing rifle cartridges, but a bit more powerful than what was typically used in pistols at the time. This cartridge was called the 7.92 Kurs, and by 1942, the German military had a few dozen prototype automatic rifles capable of firing this shortened cartridge, worked up and ready to go. And by 1944, they were producing 5,000 so-called MERS guns a month, and that number increased to 80,000 rifles a month by 1945. They clearly liked this gun, and it was pretty evident why combat had evolved at this point so that it no longer made sense to build weapons capable of firing powerful rounds vast distances. It was more important in most combat situations they were encountering to give soldiers medium-distance weapons that they could easily carry, along with a few hundred rounds for that weapon, so that they could kill their enemies relatively up close and personal, and in a way that made a win a near certainty. One soldier could shoot a cloud of bullets 
at their enemies, while the enemies were busy firing a single bullet at a time. As I mentioned, however, they started producing this smaller, lighter, machine-gun-like rifle at that scale in 1945, so they didn't have much of an opportunity to use it. The war ended that same year, and this weapon type, which became known as a Sturmgewehr, or Storm Rifle, brought them a few victories on the Russian front of their war, but not as many as might have otherwise been the case had things been going well for them elsewhere. As it turned out, instead, the Germans fell back from the Russian front to reinforce their lines back in Europe, and the Russians moved forward, picking up these storm rifles from fallen German soldiers as they did. And the Russians did what they had very successfully done with other technology at this point in history. They copied the design and made a few changes, some improvements. Thus, by 1944, a year before the end of the war, the Russians had already copied the 7.92 Kurs cartridge, making their own version, called the M1943. And in 1945, a secret contest was held by Stalin's government to design a lighter-weight machine-gun concept that could use this cartridge. A senior sergeant in the Soviet military, Mikhail Kalashnikov, worked with a team of engineers and draftsmen and women to sketch out a proposal that wasn't immediately deemed to be a good fit in 1945, but which by 1947 had been simplified and shortened, making the resultant rifle a lot easier to disassemble and clean and making the firing mechanism a lot less prone to jamming when compared to similar rifles. This design is usually attributed to Kalashnikov, though subsequent historical findings seem to indicate that while he played a role in it, it was other designers and that original team he worked with that probably did the lion's share of designing, reworking, and simplifying. Eventually, landing on a single soldier-carried automatic weapon that could be produced inexpensively, on scale, and which wasn't pretty, but which was simple enough to not have much that could go wrong with it. All the complex components had been reduced down to their fundamentals, so that the Soviet manufacturing system could churn them out quickly and at a very low cost, so that the bullets would do what they needed to do, but would be small and also cheap to make, and so that everything involved would be simple to take apart and clean, and wouldn't really have any points of consistent failure. This rifle, then, by many measures, was the lowest common denominator solution to a problem that the Soviets were trying to solve. Other weapons manufacturers and designers came up with what are ostensibly better weapons, more elegant, lighter, more streamlined, with better cartridges and more specialized purposes made of better materials and more capable of punching through armor or firing faster or whatever else. But this rifle, which was named after the designer, who probably didn't have as much to do with the final design as the Soviet government wanted everyone to believe, the automatic Kalashnikov 47, usually shortened to just AK-47, became by far the most common and proliferated weapon of war in the world. In the post-World War II 20th century and still today, well into the 21st century. Part of the reason the AK-47 became so well-known and widespread comes back to that simplicity and reliability. 
but perhaps even more vital to its success was the period in which it emerged and the roiling political intrigue and machinations that defined that era. Specifically, this was the Cold War, and the Soviet Union was trying to fend off Western adventurism into its sphere of influence, which it was also trying to expand. Consequently, it was often in the Soviets' best interest to arm groups looking for weapons, either via arms deals, sales, or gifts. This allowed them to solidify alliances, build new relationships, and also empower their military-industrial complex, keeping their manufacturing infrastructure operating at full capacity post-war by having them churn out AK-47s and ammo to send to interested parties around the world. Sometimes, these gifts or agreed-upon sales were secondarily beneficial in that they would cause headaches for Europe and the United States. They might be arming communist guerrilla fighters based in South America, looking to overthrow their democratic capitalistic governments. And though, again, these weapons were not as technically sophisticated as the automatic weapons being produced by the U.S. military-industrial complex, they were reliable and simple and inexpensive to keep up and keep fed with bullets, so they worked great for guerrilla warfare purposes, in many ways even better than the fancier, more persnickety options would have fared under those circumstances. Another aspect of what made this weapon so ubiquitous was the nature of the supply chain underpinning it. The Soviets had a top-down economic system, which meant the government decided, largely, who produced what. By reducing the overall number of weapon types that they produced, they could produce more of that single weapon, cheaper. And the AK-47 was perfect for this, because it was good enough for its purposes, but also very simple. So it was decreed that all weapons manufacturers in the Warsaw Pact states would produce this one rifle and its single type of ammunition, which meant that while other countries and alliances were using a variety of different weapons and ammunition that weren't always compatible with each other, this collection of Soviet states were all making AK-47s and only AK-47s, when it came to automatic rifles at least. So this weapon was being produced on a scale that no other weapon in history could claim, and its ammunition, those little cartridges that weren't quite traditional rifle rounds, but were more powerful than pistol rounds, were everywhere. So they were cheap and abundant, and as a consequence, great options for many use cases. Perhaps especially if you're not a government with government-scale resources available to throw at the procuring of weaponry and ammunition. As a consequence of this confluence of design sensibility and historical variables, then, AK-47s remain practical and inexpensive and abundant, even in an age of nuclear weapons and drone-fired smart missiles. The basic unit of single-person-wielded weaponry has become the automatic rifle, and that's true on and off the battlefield. This weapon has come to define that category and is still produced, if in a slightly upgraded form. But the models made decades ago often remain functional today. Their ammunition still attainable because of that ubiquity, reliability, and the infrastructure underpinning its production and maintenance. What I'd like to talk about today is military-grade arms proliferation, more broadly, 
and how this issue has expanded, but also how governments and organizations are trying to address it, and the many secondary issues that stem from it, including some that are quite relevant to very recent military happenings. Listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled Planes, Guns, Night Vision Goggles, The Taliban's New US-Made War Chest. This is just one of quite a few articles published on this topic within the past week or so, as of the day I'm recording this, which is just a few days after the United States announced the official end to its war in Afghanistan, and the final U.S. military plane took off from the Kabul airport. This has been a fairly frantic several weeks, as after the U.S. Biden administration announced a final pullout from the country, the Taliban an ultra-conservative religious group that ran Afghanistan from the 1990s until shortly after 9-11-2001, when the U.S. attacked them for housing Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind that attack on the U.S., that same Taliban group spun back up after having dissolved into the Afghan population during the war. This conflict was meant to be quite short, an in-and-out sort of thing, but instead it has become the United States' longest-ever war, dragging on for decades, and the Taliban's sudden re-emergence after that withdrawal announcement was stunning in that it was known they were still around, but they kind of just cakewalked from region to region, capturing choke points and important cities left and right, taking back the whole of the country, essentially, in a matter of weeks. Consequently, instead of a calm, casual, measured withdrawal, taking their time and building the local embassy and diplomatic power structure back up under new post-war circumstances, the U.S. military found itself scrambling to get out of Afghanistan before the Taliban could take the capital, Kabul, and potentially from there prevent the U.S. from evacuating Afghanis who helped the U.S. and allied forces while this non-Taliban government which has been in charge for about two decades, with the backing of these mostly Western countries, was in power. This scramble became a deadly crush of humanity, as people clung to planes as they took off from the airport, and tens of thousands of Afghani citizens sold everything they owned and camped out around that airport, hoping to be taken somewhere else, so they wouldn't be punished by the Taliban for working with foreigners or in some cases just so they wouldn't suffer under the ultra-conservative rule of a group that when they were previously in power, more or less stripped women of all of their rights and abused anyone who was not a strict soldier of Islam, as they defined the term. In the aftermath of that frantic withdrawal effort, though, it's become apparent that the U.S. didn't have the time to withdraw both people and all of their equipment. And that equipment is fairly important because in some cases it contains biometric information and other data connected to locals who helped the U.S. and its allies over the course of the war, which could help the Taliban 
find and identify those people. And in some cases, because said equipment is incredibly powerful weaponry, which could allow the Taliban government to project greater military influence, but also potentially greater overall authority of the kind that stems from the barrel of very big guns and very impressive military vehicles. This, on its face, is already clearly a problem. When people who might want to fight you or hurt other people you're trying to protect have bigger, badder weapons and better armor than before, they may be harder to deal with, and they may have more and better means of harming you or others. But to understand why this is an issue that goes beyond very real but somewhat superficial concerns about Taliban soldiers with better guns and jeeps, it's useful to understand the larger concept of military armament proliferation. Now, the word proliferation by itself just means the expansion or replication of something. Flowers proliferating means they're reproducing successfully, and suddenly there are flowers all over the place. Unless you are a biologist, though, chances are good that if you have heard this term, you've primarily heard it as part of the phrase nuclear proliferation, or perhaps nuclear non-proliferation. Nuclear proliferation is a concept that became a popular talking point post-World War II, when just the U.S. and then just the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and then just a handful of other countries, primarily allies of those two original countries, had built and wielded nuclear weapons. The concern was that the already tenuous nuclear stalemate between the U.S. and USSR would be made yet more tenuous or perhaps even be shattered by the presence of too many nuclear-armed nations. It's one thing if a handful of countries with solidly aligned governments have such weapons, because they will tend to act in lockstep, no matter what. But if third parties, wild cards basically, start to get their hands on these things, or learn how to make them themselves, that might upset the balance. And that was both a fear of those existing bipolarity nuke-armed opponents, but also a potential weapon to be wielded by them, as arming more nations who might support your cause could be beneficial to your side of that balance, but also, in some cases, arming third parties that might not directly support you, but which might act aggressively and antagonistically against your enemies can also be valuable, if in a somewhat different way. So while a nuclear-armed North Korea isn't really great for anyone, aside from maybe North Korea, it's more bad for some entities than others. The US and Japan and South Korea are arguably a heck of a lot more at risk now that North Korea has nuclear weapons than China and Russia are. Even though nobody's really safe, if the ruling Kim family decides to start hitting that red button, that third party still weighs more heavily on one side of the scale than the other. Thus, the proliferation of nuclear weapons that has taken place outside of the five officially recognized nuclear weapons states, which themselves are made more official by having signed the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, those non signatories are kind of wild cards, kind of independent actors, but also kind of strategic entities for other entities to work with on that grander stage. 
So India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel are non-official wielders of such weapons, and they thus complexify that larger nuclear weapon game substantially, and that added complexity is the consequence of nuclear proliferation, the wider distribution of such weapons. Nuclear non-proliferation, in contrast, is the effort supported by those five official nuke-wielding signatories to the aforementioned treaty, which basically says we've got nukes, but man, these things definitely should never be used. So rather than everyone, all nations, stockpiling nukes and spending all the money and resources and lives required to develop such things, those required sacrifices ticking higher and higher as the need to stay nuke competitive with one's enemies and neighbors takes hold and spirals, instead of tipping the world into that very fragile reality, let's just all say we're not going to use these things unless we are on the verge of annihilation, and we're not going to share the technology with anyone else. And also, we are going to go out of our way to incentivize other nations to not develop these sorts of weapons. And most of those incentives are carrots, benefits, given to countries capable of making these weapons that choose not to. But some are sticks, punishments like international sanctions, for those who dare defy the signatories of this treaty. Now, if you are thinking, isn't such a treaty a bit self-serving for those who already have nukes? Doesn't that more or less keep these super weapons in the hands of a very few, and basically give those countries the military whammy on any other country that doesn't have them. I think the answer to that is almost certainly yes, though we could quibble, saying that anyone who used a nuke today in the modern international environment would almost certainly have the rest of the world turn against them. Despite that, it's still kind of the ultimate don't-mess-with-me move, to be able to remind folks that you've got nukes and they don't. Except that you never actually have to do that because it's just understood that you cannot really usurp the US, the UK, France, Russia, or China because they would blast you into oblivion if you tried. So nuclear non-proliferation, though very sensical and potentially even world-saving from some perspectives, is also a fairly overt maintainer of the current global power structure, the global order at least in terms of major shifts in nuke-armed countries via military intervention. There's a chance you could overthrow most countries in the world with enough conventional weaponry, but that possibility drops to near zero if you're trying to do so against somebody with nukes, and you have a homeland that they can target with those nukes if they choose to do so. In addition to this being kind of a crazy state of affairs, this is also an excellent demonstration of why proliferation of any sort of weapon is often meaningful beyond just the use of that weapon. Merely wielding something can be a signal and an implied threat, and it can provide individuals or governments with heightened credibility and diplomatic status and the confidence and swagger that comes with knowing you can take care of yourself if anyone else decides to mess with you. Most arms-related non-proliferation efforts today are focused on nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, and some types of missile technologies. 
Weapons of mass destruction, basically, but also in some cases, the potential delivery vehicles of such weapons. Many countries have missiles, but very few have missiles capable of successfully delivering a nuclear warhead or effectively distributing a biological agent within a city located hundreds of miles away. Conventional weapons, though, are a lot less well-regulated internationally. And though there are some weapons that are big no-nos in the eyes of the international community, the Geneva Convention doesn't allow the planting of mines and the placement of similar booby traps, blinding laser weapons, or weapons that make use of tiny particles that can get into a person's body and cause suffering for the rest of their lives. Beyond a handful of similar, often suffering-related categories, though, pretty much everything is on the table. You cannot use mines, but you can sell as many guns and bombs and rockets and pieces of conventional artillery as you like. And some of the largest and most prolific arms dealers in the world are also big on the non-proliferation thing. The U.S. makes about $55 billion a year selling weapons to foreign allies and partners around the world, which puts the United States in first place as a global arms dealer taking about 37% of that market between 2016 and 2020. And they're followed by Russia in second place, which takes home 20% of the market, and France in third place, with 8.2% of global arms exports during that same period. All three, if you recall, are nuclear non-proliferation treaty signatories. General arms... Non-proliferation, then, is quite a limited concept, and though some of these entities will sell to just about anyone, much like the USSR's sale of AK-47s back in the 20th century, being willing to sell advanced aircraft or tanks or crates full of guns to another country is often a gesture reserved for allies and is typically negotiated as part of a larger package of agreements. In other words, weapons proliferate broadly, but governments willing to play ball with other governments that make the majority of the best weapons tend to be able to buy the best stuff, and they often try to do that because that allows them to project more authority regionally, in some cases because their military capabilities are augmented, but in other cases because it's just known that they have these weapons, and anyone who might want to mess with them or provoke them may then think twice before doing so in the future. Looping back around to the Taliban in Afghanistan, then, this is a group that would be unlikely to be able, at least in the near future, to score a solid weapons deal with the best providers in the world. They've managed to get their hands on a lot of serviceable equipment, primarily through the black market, using money gleaned from drugs and charging right-of-way hold-up taxes at the country's borders. But they've almost certainly been paying higher prices as a consequence and don't have access to a steady supply chain when it comes to ammunition and parts for repairs. The Taliban may have some decent stuff then, but not the stability necessary to keep all that stuff loaded and in solid working order, which means they're using a lot of simple equipment and thus are limited in terms of how far and consistently they can apply what military power they have. 
As the U.S. military pulled out of Kabul, though, the Taliban began to parade around the city with distinctive U.S.-made military gear, camouflage outfits, heavily padded and armored, helmets with night vision goggles, fancy high-end rifles, and all sorts of heavy vehicles that they now possess, not as a result of an alliance or trade deal, but because the U.S. military didn't have time to evacuate that equipment or to destroy most of it, though they reportedly were able to destroy and disable some of it during those frantic final days. Snazzy, whiz-bang new night vision goggles and rifles are not nuclear weapons. The Taliban will probably not be more powerful or militarily potent overall because of these captured resources. We don't have a full list of everything that was left behind yet, and that's partly because a full accounting has not been revealed to the press, and partly because there was seemingly some serious mismanagement on the part of the entities meant to be keeping tabs on such things, which is supposedly why the bill for equipment sent to Afghanistan since 2001 adds up to about $24 billion, far less, by the way, than the 83-ish billion that some have recently claimed was poured into equipment in the country. That number is actually a rounded-up misattribution or misunderstanding. $82.9 billion was spent on all aspects of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces over the course of two decades, so since 2001. And that includes equipment, but also training, transportation, and every other possible expense. So $24 billion is about what was spent on actual hardware across the span of two decades. But even those numbers are still a little bit fuzzy. We do know, however, that the Afghan military guard, which was the military of the Afghan government that was backed by the U.S. and its allies, had just over 100 helicopters, 33 of them Black Hawk helicopters, around 60 light planes, and three or four large cargo aircraft. They also had just over 3,000 Humvees with various sorts of equipment attached to them, nearly 3,600 M4 carbines, which are the modern NATO-issued version of high-end AK-47s, basically, 31 mobile strike force vehicles, which are multi-use armored personnel carriers that are also decently well-armed, and an assortment of other equipment, ranging from grenade launchers to radios and satellite dishes to cooking equipment and tents. Add to this several hundred more strike force vehicles, nearly 20,000 more Humvees, about 8,000 cargo trucks, 16,000 night vision goggles, something like 350,000 assault rifles, over 126,000 pistols, 176 pieces of artillery, and tens of thousands of varied pickup trucks and SUVs kitted out for different purposes that was left behind by the U.S. military. The Taliban won't be able to use some of this equipment, not well, anyway, because high-end attack helicopters and planes are not like guns that you can just pick up and fire. They'll almost certainly be most useful for their aesthetic effect, reminding folks of the Taliban's victory over the mightiest military in the world and possibly for use as showpieces in military parades and demonstrations. 
It's also not known just how much of this equipment was well-maintained and ready to be used in the first place. Reports vary quite a bit on this, but there's a decent chance that a large proportion of the heavy equipment in particular that was left behind might have been in some state of disrepair, much of it previously maintained by outside mercenary groups who left long before the military did. So a substantial quantity of that kit could be in need of skilled maintenance and repair that it will now likely never receive. And on top of that, as I mentioned earlier, it does seem that the military was able to disable some of the gear they left behind. The numbers on this are still a bit hazy, and we don't know the exact nature of the disabling, but the one solid collection of specifics on this matter came from General Kenneth McKenzie Jr., who said that the military was able to quote-unquote demilitarize 70 light tactical vehicles, 27 Humvees, and 73 aircraft before leaving. Though again, whether that means they were crippled by having important components removed or simply blown up on site isn't clear. Even the rifles and other more intuitively useful equipment the Taliban has gained through this windfall will likely be limited in terms of straight-up utility, though, because although there's no doubt quite a lot of ammunition and spare parts in these stockpiles that they've seized, it's not an unlimited stockpile. And it's unlikely, at the moment anyway, that the Taliban will be able to open official non-black market channels with companies or other entities that will be willing to replenish those supplies when they run out. So results will vary in that regard, and it may not be worth the added effort, cost, and headaches for them to learn to use these finite, non-replenishable weapons when good, solid AK-47s will do almost the same job without all those additional issues and baggage. In the short term, then, there will almost certainly be some small military victories won within Afghanistan, probably, with the aid of these weapons and additional equipment. Beyond that, though, much of this equipment will likely be most useful for the psychological value it provides the Taliban, a visual, tangible reminder of their ostensible victory over a powerful enemy, and a reminder to the U.S. and its allies of just how frantic the final days of occupation were, of the promises not fulfilled, and of the seeming inability of any outside force, even the world's most powerful militaries, and this has been the case across several eras, to successfully take and hold this region. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story by Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis is maybe best known for his financial or economics-based writing, including Moneyball and The Big Short, both of which were turned into pretty successful and I thought pretty decent movies. This book, however, is about the build-up to the COVID-19 pandemic 
And though we are still, as I record this at least, in the midst of that story, it's an ongoing thing, it's still quite interesting to hear, from this perspective at least, because I've read a few other books on this topic recently, but it's interesting to hear from his perspective some of the build-up to what has gone right in some ways with this pandemic, and some of the great many things that have gone not so right. This author is an excellent storyteller, and it's a very well-sourced book, as his books tend to be, but he also does a pretty good job, as he has done in his other books, of taking complex topics and making them accessible and narratively interesting through the characters involved. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Premonition by Michael Lewis. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can sign up to receive a daily email from me in which I curate and summarize the news at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.